off because I kept hitting it with my beard. Might be time to trim it or hang it in there. I don't know. Uh, I, sorry. Um, the, uh, I got a disclaimer up front. Um, we are going to start a series on Nehemiah, um, and, and that'll be the first sermon in that series will be next week. There's actually a stack of study guides in the back on a little table. Um, we did that for James, and I got a lot of positive feedback. If you're interested, the guides will be out preceding the sermons. And so if you pick it up, it'll cover the verses that I'm going to be preaching on the following week. You can read up on it. You can read about the words that are in the text. You can read about um, some of the history, um, at, answer questions and reflect on it, and then the message will kind of go along with that. And it's the idea is to sort of build on what you're doing every day. Does that make sense? So that like the message is sort of, you know, anyway. Um, And so we're going to be going into Nehemiah. And my disclaimer here is I'm doing a bit of a different sermon because um, Nehemiah takes place in a specific time and place. And it's it's like the result of a huge chunk of history. Right. Um, It's a result of of a great deal that happened um, beforehand. Um, And if you were to sit down and read like about the Battle of Britain, um, some of you all have heard of that. Uh, it, was, it was a, you know, the, the Nazis tried to capture Britain, and it was a big air battle where they, they lost, basically, um, because, because, I don't know, the good guys win in the end. Yay. Um, and, but if you read about just that battle without reading about the war, without reading about Winston Churchill, like, you know, pleading for the, the nation to fight back, without reading all of that, it loses something. Um, to understand this book properly, you've got you to gotta get a bit of history, which means I, I have to cover some history today. Now, the immediate response most folks will have will be, oh, a history. <laughs> oh, you know, let's, let's kick our feet up and prepare for the lecture. Um, and I, I want to just, just encourage you that it won't be like that. Um, a couple weeks ago, I was actually, last weekend, I was at, at the rehearsal, and I was talking to one of uh, the, the children of, of one of the gals who was there, and, and we were talking about the movie The Princess Bride. Have any of y'all seen this movie? Um, and and he, was, he was refusing to watch it. You know, his mom had been encouraging him and encouraging him and encouraging him. He wouldn't watch it. He said, it's the Princess Bride. It's a girl movie. And I said, no, it sounds like a girl movie, but it's got sword fights and pirates and um, either sports and what else? That's most of the line. This, as we look at what? Inconce- yeah, it's inconceivable that he wouldn't enjoy it. Um, thanks. I actually thought that I should say that last night, and I wrote it down, and I didn't say it. Um, um, as we kind of dive into the, the preceding stuff, um, this story, it, it's got a lot to it, and it's actually, some of it's really exciting. Um, there, it's the story of God's romance with his people. God's chasing after his people. There's, you know, and there's, there's a lot of stuff that's very neat that happens in there, and, and um, if you understand this, then the series will make more sense. Everybody with me? Um, and so we're going to start. Um, that was my, my disclaimer. Um, we're going to start with a really quick explanation. There are, is like a right way and a wrong way to read the Old Testament. Okay? Um, you know, they, they say there's no wrong way to do some things. There is a wrong way to do this. Okay? Um, I, I know it's upsetting. <laughs> But it won't be that bad. Is that somebody's phone? Um, I know. That's a tough crowd. I'm glad nobody brought tomatoes. Um, I'm looking at you, Michael. 
Um, <laughs> so the, the, the wrong way, and you'll see this a lot, the wrong way, if, if we take the story and we, we make it about us, right, that, that's not really the right way to do it. Like if I, you know, Nehemiah is the story of, of a man coming and building a wall around the city of Jerusalem, right? And I, I listened to about 30 sermons on, on the beginning of the book of Nehemiah in the last couple of weeks, and um, three-quarters of them were about how you should build a wall around your life. And, and that's not... It's not about building a wall around your life. Got it? It's not about, like, it's not a book about us. It's a book about the ancient Israelites. And so we're going to come at it from that perspective, and we're going to look at it in context. Now, um, another way that people, like, like, do this wrong is context. Has anybody ever heard the verse, I know the plans that I have for you, right, for your life, plans to, what, how does it go, plans to prosper you, not to, not to harm you. And there's a lot of times you'll hear sermons on this verse alone, and this verse alone sounds like, hey, God's got a plan for my life, and everything's going to go great. And, and all I have to do is step out there and do things. And this is actually, it's from Isaiah, and it's God explaining through Isaiah, hey, listen, um, there's going to come a time when an army's going to come in, they're going to slaughter most of the people in your country, and they're going to drag you away in chains, and you're going to be gone for almost 100 years. But don't worry, <laughs> I have a plan for your life. <laughs> so, um, you know, as we build into this, like we're about to jump into this story, right? Um, this is the I have a plan for your life, a plan not to like harm you, but to improve you. And, and so like, like for that to make sense, when you hear I have a plan for you, but it begins with most of you dying. Um, that sounds funny, Right? <laughs> Um, but, but in context, it makes sense. And it begins with understanding Israel as a nation. Um, and that actually begins with um, the story of how Israel became a nation. Um, God starts out, he creates the world, right? Um, everything that ever is, everything that ever was, time, space, reality, everything. He creates it. It is beautiful. It's perfect. It spins like a top. It runs perfectly um, like a Ford, you know, it hums along, it clicks, everything does what it's supposed to do, it doesn't break down, it is perfect. I should say Toyota, shouldn't I? I'm, I own a Toyota. Um, and and um, he populates it with people. Um, the reason he populates it with people is because God is personal, right? God is a person, meaning he has a personality, right? God has an identity, and God puts people there, and his intent is to relate with his creation, Right? Um, however, he gives them a choice. He says, you can live in this garden forever, you can enjoy me, you can enjoy everything, or you can disobey my one rule. And that is, don't eat off that tree over there. Right? If God doesn't put the tree there, they have no choice, and, like, they don't really love him, they're robots. Right? Um, in order for them to, to love God properly, there's always got to be a choice. And so God puts the tree there. He loves his creation. He gives it the best. And then one day they decide, I think I'm going to try the tree, right? Like I've had this, now I'm going to try that. And from that point forward, the harmony is gone, right? The harmony kind of, it, it all goes to heck. It, it just goes, you know, it goes from being, being, you know, a finely tuned machine to being a Dodge. Everybody knew it was coming. I had to say it. Um, <laughs> it, it, it suddenly, like, it begins with, 
with, you know, people lying and people envying and people murdering and people, you know, and it just gets worse and worse and worse from there. And what was God tight with his creation, right? Where it talks about God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. God literally showed up to hang out with Adam and Eve. I mean, could you imagine you know, hey, I know that you spoke things into creation, nothing existed, and then you made it exist by telling it to, right? And I can't even do that at home. I say, Abby, pick up your room. And she laughs at me because my voice has no weight, right? God has so much authority, he commands nothing into being something. And this God shows up and he walks and talks with Adam and Eve and he's friends with them, he's close with them. There's this love-like connection with his creation. Everybody got it? And that was the design. Now, rebellion happens, and suddenly we go from being close together to God being over here and man being over here, right? Only this isn't quite right. I would need to be like God is here and, you know, man is um, in California um, or further, right? Like there's suddenly a huge gulf between God and man. And it wasn't the way the world was created to be. Um, actually, if you, if you doubt this, have you ever woken up in the middle of the night or gone to bed at night and felt alone and felt abandoned or felt hopeless or felt like nothing was ever going to be right again or watched a loved one pass away and felt like it was just the wrongest thing that ever happened and it shouldn't be that way or, you know, experienced some sort of like failure morally and you back up and say, why would I do that? I, you know, I shouldn't be like this. Um, that's all like a product of this natural part of ourselves that was designed to be one way, acting or experiencing the world doing something different. Everybody with me? Nobody lost? Everybody's still awake. Um, can I have my slides back? Or? All right. Um, so we go from the, uh, the creation and the fall. The effect that it has on the world is this distancing. And then God develops a new plan. He starts out, actually, there are several stages to the plan. The first thing he says is, well, all of the bad people are done. I'm going to wipe you all out, and I'm going to start over, right? And he floods the earth, and he saves a handful of people, so there are people left. And the first thing they do is they build a vineyard, get drunk, wander around naked, and start fighting each other. And guess what? <laughs> I, that's in there. I didn't make that up. Like, like the, the, the problem is that all people are affected by it, right? You know, have you ever heard people say, well, why doesn't God just kill all the bad people? Can't he just make it right? problem is that I would go with them. And that's a big problem, right? So would you. That's not as big of a problem to me because I'm sinful and self-centered, right? Because we all are, because we're broken spiritually. Um, God did not intend the world to be that way, um, we are kind of stuck where we are. Um, the other thing that comes out of it is people pick their own gods. Um, Adam was told, if you eat from that tree, you'll um, become like God. And, and in reality, um, the only way he becomes like God is he knows the difference between good and evil. From this point forward, he picks his own gods, right? They begin worshiping trees. They begin worshiping plants. They begin worshiping stuff they make. Um, you all know folks like this, actually. You know people who worship alcohol, Right? That is God. They worship their enjoyment and leisure time. They worship their work. They worship their family. They worship their children. They worship their car. They worship their, you know, you name it. People find things to worship because we are broken, spiritually separated from God, and there's a gulf. And we operate in a way that we aren't meant to be. Um, we worship things that are not him. Um, and so God 
um, in an effort to fix it, picks out one guy and says, I'm going to start with one, right? One. And there was a man named Abraham. He says, Abraham, you are my people. We're starting small. Um, And I'm going to be your God. And we're going to do this as simple as possible. And he makes a bunch of promises. He says, Abraham, you'll get a land. You know, this place that is your home, and it'll be your home forever and only your home. And um, I will make your descendants as numerous as numerous as the number of grains of sand on the beach. Got it? So he says, Abraham, there's going to be a lot of you. Right? And, so, and that's Israel. Right? Like, that's the Jewish people. They're descendants of Abraham. They are, like, the, the first relationship where God says, I'm going to start over and this is how I'm going to do it. I'm going to relate to the world this way. And, and he starts and he finds he has a, a new difficulty. And that new difficulty is that if you do not know how to have a relationship with someone, you can't. Got it? Like, if you do not know what's expected of you, if you do not know what the rules are, if you do not know how it works, um, it becomes very difficult to manage that, right? Um, there are rules in every relationship. My wife and I have a rule about not dating other people. And, and we maintain that rule, right? It's a good rule. We have a rule about her being right and me being wrong. I'm not going to say what the rule is. Sorry, my mouth is getting dry. Um, the, these rules are a part of the whole deal and, 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 um, for every relationship. And in God's, um, in God's economy, the way he sets it up is um, the Jews have grown to hundreds of thousands. Um, and he sends a fellow named Moses who delivers them from slavery. We're not getting into that because this would be way too long of a story. Otherwise, it's very exciting. It's an Exodus read it. I highly recommend it. Um, it was a bestseller. Uh, through Moses, he gives them the law. That's the Ten Commandments and about, I don't know, 600 additional rules. And these rules are like the bumpers in a bowling alley. You ever bowl with, like, the bumpers up, like little kid bowling? I'm still terrible with that. It's not good. Um, but they're designed to keep you in the lane, right? The bumpers keep you in the lane, and that's what the rules are. God gives the Ten Commandments, and his thing is, like, look, guys, I love you. I love you enough that I am going to, like... Go out and fight on your behalf. It's what Exodus is the story of God fighting on, on his people's behalf, like personally fighting for them. He says, I fight for you. I, you know, I give you food. I give you clothing. I give you everything you need. And, and you just need to know if you're going to be in this relationship, here are the ground rules, right? And the first thing that the people do is they break them. I mean, literally, where Moses gets angry and throws them on the ground and smashes them into a million pieces, right? <laughs> but they also break them by, like, disobeying them. The, you know, and that's sort of the inclination of all men. You give me a rule, I'll find a way to break it, right? Um, and so Moses and the law, the people know what the expectations are, and they continue to break them, and they end up living in Canaan, like God brings them to the land, right? I actually have a – oops, too far. Um, I actually have sl- – uh, a diagram, and a laser pointer, um, which I keep forgetting to use. Uh, that's the Exodus, about 462 uh, B.C. It's a long time ago. They enter Canaan, which is where Israel is now, and they go into the time of the Judges. The Judges is about 500 years where the people are there, they're living, they're prospering, they're having a great time, and whenever a leader is needed, God sends someone, right? A judge. Um, and And... I was going to make the same joke. Thanks for stealing it. Um, <laughs> they, they, they send, God sends judges. He takes care of them. But eventually people are like, you know what? God's people say, you know what? I'm sick of God being our king. Can't we have a king? Everybody else has a king. 
Why don't we have a king? Can we have a king? I want a king. Anybody who has a little kid will notice that occasionally they'll see things other people have and say, I want that. Even if it's not what they really want and you know better, right? And they ask and they ask and they ask and they ask and finally God's like, you know what? Forget it. I'll give you a king, okay? But understand, you ain't going to like it, right? That's like I remember in high school, I asked to have my first job. I want a job. I want a job. I want a job. I want a job. And my parents said, just enjoy me taking care of you. Nope, I want a job. I want a job. I want a job. And then I started washing dishes. <laughs> and I saw FICA. I don't know who that jerk is, but if I ever meet him, he owes me, he owes me big. <laughs> but, but, you know, they say, we want this stuff. And God says, you know what? You're not, you're rejecting me. This is you rejecting me personally. But he gives him a king. And guess what? The king is terrible. It's a guy named Saul. He is not a good king. Uh, eventually, he's replaced by a fellow named David, right? David comes along. David is a slightly better king, but he's not perfect. He has a son, Solomon, who's a really good king, but he's immoral, right? And this really good king is an economic genius. He turns the country into a world superpower by inventing the toll road. That's it. He invented the toll road. He said, anybody who wants to bring stuff through my country can, but you're going to pay me a tax. And he made Israel into one of the most like, prosperous nations um, in the world at the time. And so Solomon is king, and at the end of Solomon's reign, he has a thousand wives. Right? They say he was a very wise man. I suggest a thousand wives points otherwise. Um, <laughs> He has a thousand wives at the end of his reign, and the thing that comes about as a result, now watch this, these wives come in, they come from foreign countries, because if you marry a foreign, like, king's daughter, you gain power because you have a claim on their throne. And so he has all of these wives, and these wives, they nag him, I hate to say it, and they're like, we liked our religion back home. Can't we do that here? Come on, can't we do it here? Come on, can't we do it here? Come on, can't we do it here? Finally, Solomon's like, okay, build your temples. And they start building temples to foreign gods. And what ends up happening is these temples do very well. And all of a sudden, the people begin worshiping some other gods. And then they begin looking at the folks around them, and they say, well, wait a minute, they've got that god. I want that god. Can we have that god? Let's have that god. Come on, let's bring that in. Let's bring that in. Let's bring that in. And eventually you have where Israel goes from following God, being close to God, having this intimate connection with God to worshiping just about everything under the sun and the sun itself. Um, At the end of Solomon's life, his son takes over. He is a terrible king. The first thing he says is, we're going to go ahead and raise taxes. And the people in the north say, hey, you know what? We liked your dad, but you ain't him. If you cut taxes, we'll stick with you. And they say, he says, well, I'm, I'm raising taxes. I'm even tougher than my dad. And they said, well, have a nice day. We're gone. And the nation breaks into two parts. And they fight for the rest of their lives like brothers, right? Only worse because they kill each other. Um, it's like a car trip with my family. Um, <laughs> And that's when the kingdom divides. That is about 952, and um, they never come back together again, and they begin worshiping separately. In the north, they worship God, but they begin incorporating pagan practices, lots and lots of pagan practices, until they don't really look like Jews anymore, right? They become something very different. Um, there's stories of child sacrifice, right? Like there are stories of you know, temple prostitution and, and stuff like that. I mean, they get... Pretty bad. And eventually, 
God gets kind of kind of tired of it, and he says, you know what, I'm sick of this, I'm getting rid of you, and he sends a nation called Assyria. The Assyrians conquered the whole world at one point. The whole world. Now, they conquered um, the northern kingdom, right, as the people declined and they got worse and worse and worse and worse. Um, God sent the Assyrians and he conquered them. Um, and then um, he sent the Babylonians who... who uh, well, hold on, let's jump ahead here. The Assyrians, they go to invade the southern kingdom, right? And um, Isaiah comes to the king and says, you know what? You are going to get killed. You are in so much trouble because you have ticked God off royally, right? And he is sending an army and they are going to wipe you out. You are all doomed. Happened in the north, it's going to happen here. And the king says, well, I'll make friends with Syria. These guys will help us. And guess what? They got beat up. So if you find a friend to fight for you and that guy gets beat up, you've got a problem, right? And they are in a great deal of trouble. They're worshiping false gods. They're sacrificing their children. They're doing all sorts of terrible stuff. And Isaiah talks the king into repenting, right? And he talks him into repenting with the Assyrian army camped around his city. There is hundreds of thousands of soldiers encamped around him and they're preparing to build siege works to go over his walls and they're going to kill everyone everyone and the king says fine i'm sorry god and he repents and overnight a disease hits the camp this happened like like it was the end of assyria's military campaign um they literally lost like half their army overnight and they pulled up stakes and they left because god said you know what i'll fight for you just come back to me um, however, things got worse again. Uh, Chronicles records this. I thought it was worth sharing. All the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations. And they polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem. And the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers um, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. Now watch this. God sent prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet. Prophets are not fortune tellers. Okay, it's easy to think of it that way. Like, oh yeah, hey, this guy will tell me what the lottery numbers are. That's not what a prophet is, right? A prophet is a guy who shows up and talks on God's behalf. So these guys showed up and they said, you need to stop setting your kids on fire to worship Baal. Cut it out. <laughs> oh, yeah, you're stupid. You don't know what you're talking about. We like setting our kids on fire. Um, it's a very tough discipline. Um, and eventually God wipes out Israel, or the southern kingdom. He sends Babylon. And the Babylonians run over the Jews, right? Like, I mean, the southern kingdom, the, the Israelites. They, they run them over. They, they conquer them three times. Like they beat them and they take away part of the community into captivity, right? Um, and then afterwards, the Israelites sit around and they're like, you know, we could have won that fight. Let's go try again. So they try again and they lose. And then they try again and they lose again. And the third time, the Babylonians came in and they burned the city down. And they took everything out of the temple and they took it home. And then they tore down the city walls and they took everyone, right? Everyone except the poorest of the poorest of the poorest people. So like, like me and like one of my neighbors, 
<laughs> poor people. I'm kidding. I, it was actually like the people who were hiding and, and the people who weren't worth bringing. They took everyone and they moved them away because what ancient civilizations found was that it was very easy to control foreign countries if you just took everyone out. Right? Like, if you took everybody who was living there out and moved them somewhere else, they got really passive. In the north, the Assyrians took all of the people worth taking, and they spread them out all over the kingdom. And there were little villages of Jews everywhere, right? Or sort of Jews, not really Jews. And they began marrying their neighbors, and they disappeared, right? They incorporated foreign religions, and they became something else. The poor people that were not worth taking left behind were repopulated with other folks. They started bringing in their own guys and dumping them in, and they started marrying them, and they became the, Assyri- or the Samaritans. When you read about the Samaritans in the New Testament, that's those guys. They were the guys who like, were awful, not worth taking, and they just started intermarrying, and they disappeared. Got it? Um, thank you for jumping past all that. Are you jumping past? Um, the difference between the exiles, the, the Babylonians took the Jews out of the southern kingdom, Um, And they moved them, right? But they put them all in the same place, right? Instead of scattering them to the wind, all of a sudden you had all the Jews in one place. And um, you had all the, um, like, like, like they they were able to remain independent. Um, Like there were, all right, I'm going to pause here. The big difference between the two, when I talked about, I have a plan for you, right? Plan to prosper you, not to harm you. This is how God prospered them. There's a long story to get here. God's goal was to have a relationship with them. Everybody with me? What he got was rebellious, bratty, unfaithful people. God's goal was to love his people. What he got was, um, actually, if you read Hosea, is one of the hardest books in the Bible. God tells Hosea, he's one of the prophets, he's like, I want you to go and marry this woman, Gomer. That was the beginning of her problem. Like she was named Gomer, but she was a prostitute. Um, and, and when he married this prostitute, what happened was she um, wasn't very faithful, right? She, she slept around. She eventually ran away from him and ended up a slave, like, in a temple. And God sent his prophet, Hosea. He says, go get her and bring her home. Buys her out of slavery, brings her home. And guess what? She does it again. And she does it again. And they have three children. And Hosea, who loves his wife, right, names his children things like, this is not my child. And the second child, son of another man. (laughs) Um, And God says, you know what, Hosea, this is awful. But as you go through this, understand, this is what I'm going through with my people. I love them, and this is how they're treating me. I want to be intimate and close with them. This is how they're responding to me. They would rather be slaves to a foreign god than be my people. They would rather be like treated like dirt than given everything by me. And and this is the kind of ongoing problem that the people have. And so when God sends the people into exile in the north, they get destroyed. They disappear. And the reason they get destroyed, my laser pointer again, They're scattered, they intermarry so they don't remain pure, and they suddenly become not a people anymore. Got it? Um, They never come back when they are, like, Assyria is conquered by Babylon, and the people are like, you know what? We like it here. We ain't coming back. And so they never return to the land. They stay away. 
Um, and finally, um, the people who were left over intermarried with the Assyrians and with the other countries that were imported, and they stopped being Jews. Um, and they became Samaritans, right? Which are sort of like Jewish-Assyrian hybrids. Um, for the southern kingdom, they were separated. They were forced from their homes, but they were kept together. And because they were kept together, have any of y'all ever gone through a difficult time with people who were like living in the same proximity with you? Right? Like, like family members and you go through a hard time together. Or college, when you have like roommates and you go through college and you have to do exams and you do all this stuff and you're like, this is miserable and it's awful, but by the end you're much closer with them because you went through something difficult together. There's a nice thing about hardship, and that is that it kind of knits you together, right? Because when you're going through difficulty, who do you have except the people around you? Right? And so what God does is he crushes his people, but in crushing them, he binds them together in a way that's unique. And so even though we've been saying for literally like 3,000 years, stop marrying people who are not Jewish. Stop marrying people who are not Jewish. They didn't listen. And when they finally did start listening, they listened because he kicked their butts really bad, right? Um, they remain set apart because they realized when they went into captivity, they're like, we're here because we disobeyed God over and over again and we ignored him, right? We're here because we, like, rebelled against God. So what do we need to do now? Cut it out, right? It's like my daughter. When she gets in trouble and I send her to her room and all of a sudden she can obey every rule in the house while she's sitting on her bed in trouble, right? And that's what they did. And actually, when they came out of captivity, the whole nation changed. They became sticklers for the rules. That's when the Pharisees showed up, by the way. The Pharisees were guys who believed you could earn your way to heaven by obeying the rules perfectly. Right? So they went from one extreme where they didn't love God and they disobeyed his rules to another extreme where they didn't love God and they loved his rules more than they loved him. It's kind of crazy. Um, But they remained pure. They came back in mass. Right as this book begins, Nehemiah, Nehemiah is the third phase of return. About 50,000 Jews return to the city, and they repopulate the land, right? They become a nation again. Um, And finally, um, because the land was empty, the, the Babylonians never repopulated, there was no intermixing. God kept the whole place pristine. It would be like you left your house for 70 years, and you came back, and it was exactly the way you left it. Um, actually, I'm sure you can go out into the, the homesteads and find houses like that, right? Um, so the positive impact of the exile. Now, this is important, and this is where it's going to relate to you. Watch this, okay? Um, they repented of their sins. Um, this is not a story about us, but we can learn things from it. Got it? We can learn things about what it is to go through difficulty. We can learn things about like what it is to be crushed by the sins we commit, right? And we all do them, right? We all are soaking in sin constantly. It's just part of being human. I'm probably worse than most of you, honestly. Um, but going through the difficulty that was brought on by their sins, all of a sudden they're like, yeah, we ain't doing that anymore. <laughs> I ain't getting anywhere near that. I, I knew a guy, he was a, um, from Chicago. He was a gang member, and he was a drug addict, right? And he, he got sent to jail because um, he'd committed a pretty significant crime, and he was facing a 130-year sentence. And his grandmother walked into court and begged the judge to send him to a rehab facility in northern Indiana in a church. 
And, and you know, she begged him and begged him and begged him. And for whatever reason, because it's probably because it's Chicago, the judge said, I will send your son, your grandson to rehab. And he went there and he met Jesus there, right? And I swear to you, he was one of the coolest guys I ever met. His name was Clinton. And that guy would not go near a bar for any money in the world. He would meet kids at our children's home who were gang members, and they would try to talk gang stuff with him. And he'd be like, I ain't going to tell you what gang I was in. I'm not even interested in talking about it with you because he knew what kind of hole he came out of. It takes a special kind of person to get out of a hole and then jump back in it, right? And the Jews coming back from exile, coming back from the hole they were in, coming back you know, literally from like hell, right? Separation from God. They came back and they're like, we ain't sinning anymore and we are going to stay away from everything that messes us up, right? I ain't going anywhere near that stuff. That stuff, you know, that, that messed me up before. I ain't doing it again. Um, they became purely monotheistic. All of a sudden they were worshiping God alone. There are a lot of people, when they begin following God, they desire to have both, right? Do you know folks like that? My God is me and God. My God is my job and God. My God is money and God. My God is alcohol and God. My God is, you know, my sense of what should and shouldn't be and God. And I'm going to try and balance both. But God is sort of funny because he's like with Hosea. Hosea would say, I'm not sharing my wife with anyone, right? Is there anybody here who's cool with sharing your spouse, your boyfriend, or your girlfriend with anyone else? (laughs) <laughs> not telling your wife that you did that for a price. <laughs> um, so they, they, they rejected idolatry. All of a sudden they became the faithful spouse, right? Um, synagogues were established. Before this point, the entire religion centered around the temple and sacrifice, right? And it was hugely ritualistic. I have heard people complain about Christianity. It is just ritual, Religion is just ritual. It's just stuff we do over and over again. And that's what they were, what they became, right? Because all of a sudden there's no temple to go to. And so they started meeting in places called synagogues. And they would have guys who worked in those synagogues who taught. And they learned about who God was and they prayed at home and they worshipped at home and they read at home and they studied at home. And all of a sudden it went from being a really ritualistic religion to being spread out and a religion of faith a religion of personal connection with God. What did God want in the beginning? He's trying to draw the world back to him, right? Crushing his people resulted in them coming back to him and being intimate with him in a way they never were before. Um, But that's a hard way to get there, ain't it? Um, We're almost done here, guys. I'm sorry. I know it's a long morning, and this is um, the History Channel moment, except there's no aliens. Um... Really? <laughs> um, um, so Judea- <laughs> um, they also began to spread Judaism. Like the fact that they were scattered to the wind meant all of a sudden the neighbors were watching. And they're like, hey, I want some of that. And they began to spread their faith. And all of a sudden there were Jews everywhere, right? Which became this huge thing in the long run. But we, we're not going to talk about that today. Um, and the last part of this is they began to hunger for someone to save them. Right. Isaiah, I skipped over the passage, but about 150 years before, like they were freed from exile, Isaiah wrote the name Cyrus. He said, Cyrus is going to show up and he is going to save you. He is going to conquer your enemies. He's going to pull you out of like your captivity. He's going to take you home. And 150 years later, the Persians show up 
and the Persians conquer Babylon and they stand at the gate of the city of Babylon and the general who's leading the army is Cyrus. Could you imagine the day he had when the Jews showed up with their like, you know, 150 year old scroll and they're like, hey, read this. We knew you were coming, right? But what happens then is the Jews begin looking for God to send someone to save them. Guess who that someone ends up being? That's Jesus. This whole story of the Bible leading up to this point and God crushing his people for the things that they had done in rebellion is a preparation for the coming of Jesus. It's a preparation. It changed the Jewish faith in a way that made Jesus something they were looking for and then didn't recognize when he showed up. Um, And so they begin to hunger for that. Um, For those of us who are here this morning, how does this relate to you? Um, There are some of us who wander through our faith as though it's a ritual, right? There are some of us who do it because it's an obligation. There are some of us who won't do it anywhere but here because they don't want anybody to see them doing it, right? There are some of us who try to stand on both sides of the fence, and I got God and I got this, and I love both, right? There are folks who do this. And ultimately, like, God doesn't put up with it. Does that mean God's going to squish you? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. My encouragement for you is that, um, like, if you're living in a spot where, like, you're dried up and you're broken because of this, understand God's got something better, right? Um, What he calls us to, and man, this is a long morning. I'm really sorry. It's hard to cover the whole Old Testament in one sitting. Um, (laughs) What... What God is calling us to ultimately is salvation in Christ. Like God sends his son and he is the last deliverer. He dies and takes punishment for our sins. He makes it so there are no more exiles, right? There's no more kicked out of the land. There's no more living in slavery. There's no more nothing. He brings us back to a place where in purity, like we can be with him. And it's just a matter of having this close, intimate connection to him. Um, we're going to close in prayer because I am way long today. Sorry, guys. I, uh... Again, whole Old Testament. Um, We are going to start on Nehemiah next week. There is a stack of study guides in the back by the door. um, And we will close in prayer. Um, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would be with us today. I pray that um, you would just, Lord, help us to understand the work that you did in your people to prepare uh, for us, to prepare to, like, bring us back to you. I pray that you would give us your your grace and your mercy this morning. Um, In Jesus' name, amen. It's also hot in here.